Quessamore drawing clear on the run to the line, and Quessamore makes all to win the Lonsdale Cup. Cityscape is giving them something to catch past the 100 metres mark. Mudahadi's run to second. City Style is third, but Cityscape, a big, big winner. Cityscape wins the Dubai Duty Free. They've got now 50 yards to go, and Al Kazim wins the Coral Eclipse. Decorated night wins for Robert Carton and Andrea Cini. They backed this like defeat was out of question. It was with Hold is powering to the line. He's won it in sensational style. Quadrilateral coming together with a late flourish on the far side. Quadrilateral, Jason Watson, just a powerful breeze. And that really is only scratching the surface, tip of the iceberg, call it what you will, of the training career of Roger Charlton, which has been the training career of Roger and Harry Charlton uh, latterly. And, of course, they teamed up with Group Race Victory with Time Lock a couple of days ago. What a lovely filly she looks. And yesterday, narrowly denied with a heavy favourite Greek order in the Cambridgeshire. And it is quite extraordinary, welcome, Roger, that we, we spoke on Friday. I'd spoken to Dan and Claire earlier in the week, and I watched the race, and there they are flashing p- past the post together. Um, to their delight, I'm sure, and your somewhat frustration. How do you feel about yesterday, first of all? Um, I could see why he was favourite going into it, because his profile looked good, and his um, performance at Newbury was impressive. But, you know, it was a small field. He was able to be relaxed at the back. He came wide up straight. He understandably went up ten pounds. I think time form had him rated well clear of the others, mm. or a few pounds clear of the others. So he was obvious favourite. I thought he was very short in the market, to be honest, for a thirty-three or thirty-four runner race to be three to one or whatever price was. I thought was much too short, really. But he ran a great race, and you know that was I think his seventh race. So he's inexperienced compared to a lot of those horses. I think he's going to develop into a really nice horse and I was pleased yesterday he actually settled well which had been a problem before and he walked around he looked magnificent in the paddock he's a proper big son of Kingman Mm. and um, your son Harry I was speaking to on on Friday afternoon and he was saying it was very obvious from when he came in that he was kind of top of the class yeah, I mean, you, you get to sort of this time of the year with two-year-olds and you, you, you're always looking for something to arrive. And um, he always worked like a really good horse. And I, you know, it's silly to think you may have a guineas horse at that stage, but he did work really well. And then he went to, uh, to Newmarket and... Uh, no, he went to Salisbury and got beaten, favourite. And then we went to Newmarket and Charlie Appleby beat us. Oh, well, that's probably a really good horse and blah, blah, blah. So it was a bit disappointing, really, to be fair. But, um, you know, that happens a bit. And um, I think it, it's coming good now. And I think if he, um, you know, if he runs again, we'll step him up back to 10 furlongs, which I think is really what the trip he wants. And I think, ideally, he doesn't want the ground quite as quickly, quick as it was yesterday. Now, I said before the break that you had some important news for us. You were Roger Charlton. You have been Roger and Harry Charlton. Next season, it's going to be Harry Charlton. So you are. I don't know what you. What are you doing? You're, I was going to say you're retiring, <laughs> but people hate that. Well, so. I've, I got a message just now from Steve Drown, who, as you know, is a stipe. Uh, sorry to hear, boss, that you're you're retiring. And so I quickly got back to that. I'm actually not retiring because <laughs> I like working. 
Um, what we're doing is that, uh, as you know, we had a joint license. Mm -hmm. um, we dis I discussed it with Harry as to whether a joint license was the right approach, and we thought it was that you have a sort of seamless transition and that um, some of the owners get to know him better. Um, I think it's right now. He's um, extremely experienced, very able and bright person, and um, I think it's right for him to, to hold the license. I think it's right for Beckhampton image to have a slightly younger image going forwards. And so we thought at the end of this season it was a sensible thing to do. It was just a question of when, when it was going to actually be announced. I have managed to ring up all the owners already. Um, but, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And I've been there, I think, 45 years and really doing the same thing. And I've been training for 33 years or something. Um, you know, I'm not going to suddenly not get up in the morning. I mm. like doing it. I yeah. like horses. I love going around evening staples every day. And I love going out in the downs. And I like sitting on a tractor and mowing the grass and doing everything that um, to keep Beckhampton going. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of history in that I think it's now 200 years old for training. And I think that I think that Harry will be the eighth trainer in those wow. 200 years. So, you know, we've all we've all had a good stint, um, and obviously my predecessors have been incredibly famous and, and very good trainers. Is that something you always felt that sense of custodianship? Yeah. You, yeah, you felt you were just looking after it for the next person. Yeah, I think so because. Um, you know, I think life is full of chances, and, and I happen to be lucky that Jeremy Tree asked me. You know, I'd had a, a bit of a stint in the, in the city, and then I came down and I um, started the swimming pool in Lambourne, and then uh, Nicky Henderson bought it, was desperate to find a yard, and, you know, I was half heading back to the, to the city until Jeremy Tree said that he was wanting an assistant and that, um, you know, wanted younger people. And I, I sort of coincided, luckily, very luckily, with Prince Khaled and Judmont. Because I think the second or third year I was there, they bought four yearlings, mm -hmm. and as we know, it's progressed enormously since then. And, and was, uh, was Rainbow Quest one of those when you were there? Yeah, he was very yeah. much there. I mean, I think known fact was the, the second crop. We had a big grey horse called Marzouk, who Lester Piggott won a two-mile maiden at York once, and, and Prince Khaled was there. Um, but, you know, that was the first crop, I think, and Alia, there were some, you know, and then and we, you know, there were, some, there were some good horses, and it really lifted the stable, uh, as you'd expect, mm. with a boost like that. And I think at one stage, Jeremy had the pick of the, the yearlings, and, you know, one year he took 28 yearlings, wow. and they were proper horses. And you know, we probably only had 60 horses in those days. So it was, you know, blue-blooded stuff. So it wasn't difficult for the, for the fortunes, but timing was really lucky for me, actually. It was one of those sort of great sliding doors moments, really. I, I do wonder whether, had it not been for that, you'd have still found your way to doing this, like water finds its course. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to be a trainer. I mean, I found it a rather badly written letter to my parents when I was 16 <laughs> saying, could I leave school early and, you know, do I have to do A-levels and all that sort of thing? And because all I want to be is a trainer. 
And my father said, well, you know, you can't possibly afford to be a trainer. So I did a sort of stint in Australia. I actually went as a, there's been a program recently called the 10 pound POM. I actually went to Australia as a 50 pound POM. I migrated there and I spent um, nearly two years in Australia until I got slightly spooked by the idea that um, they were drafting Australians into fight in Vietnam war. And because you give up your passport when you're there, I hadn't become an Australian citizen, obviously. And we were working out in the bush. And, you, you know, you didn't have internet. You didn't have mobile telephones. Mm. You don't know what's going on. And I got a bit spooked by the idea of um, actually going to fight in, in Vietnam and thinking, do I really want to do that? So I came back before the two years up and did a stint in Hong Kong and so on and so forth. But um, I always wanted to be a trainer, but it was just a question I never really thought I was going to have the opportunity to do it. And had that been because you'd, you'd always been around horses? From, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I lived on a farm and my father had horses and I got taken out of school one day uh, to ride in a point-to-point -point age 16 and the headmaster was frightfully grumpy about it. And my father said, it's ridiculous. It should, he should see it as a good thing that you're going to ride in a point-to-point. -point. Anyway, the headmaster... So in the end, we didn't tell him. We just snuck off and hoped that one didn't break a collarbone or do something silly. But no, I loved riding. And I guess when one's young, one sort of dreamed of winning the Grand National. Mm. That never quite well, happened. You, you did get quite a long way up the, up no, the riding ladder. No, not really. Um, again, I got well, lucky. You won a Cheltenham Festival race. Yes, I know. But I mean, I think I only had four winners or something, and that was one of them. We haven't got it, I'm afraid. I know. I'd love to see it. I don't think it exists. <sighs> it, it was very heavy ground that year. It's 69. And, uh, and a certain John Oaksey um, was second on line burner for Bob wow. Tunnell. Were you, I mean, was it expected to win? No, not really. Um, so it was the Kim Muir? Yeah. yeah. Edward Courage, who uh, owned and bred mm -hmm. a lot of lovely horses, happened to live um, four miles down the road. And during the school holidays, I used to bicycle down there and ride out. And there were people like David Nicholson and wonderful people and the Spanish steps and raw relief and sort of good horses and I used to be allowed to ride these wonderful horses and I used to lead them schooling and all that sort of thing and then along came a horse called Pride of Kentucky um, and he wasn't a great jumper in fact one or two of the better jockeys had been unseated but anyway that day at Cheltenham the ground was very heavy and he jumped from fence to fence and um, we had a dream run round I think I'd probably look pretty pretty um, amateurish but anyway the horse won um, and I think I did 10 stone 3 probably and I hadn't eaten certainly hadn't drunk much but I hadn't eaten for probably nearly a week and um, I remember two days before the race um, I lived down in Chepstone worked for Colin Davis for Persian War struggling to get out of bed to do evening stables. So I felt so weak, and I thought, well, I think I've overdone the, the wasting a bit here, so I had to sort of boost up a bit. But um, we got there, and then after the race, um, there must have been a group of Irishmen that backed Pride of Kentucky, and I got sort of hoisted off to a sort of bar where there were lots of neat whiskies and drinks, and, and I ended you, up you on all complete, fours. a complete hero. Com complete sort of knockout and got rescued by certain Charles Barnett who <laughs> was famous for running the Grand National that nearly wasn't. Absolutely brilliant. And you never yeah. rode around Aintree? I, I jumped one fence uh -huh. at Aintree. Uh, uh, this horse then went to the Topham. 
Right. And I walked the course in the morning. I stayed in a boarding house the night before. I walked the course rather nervously, like I am, in the morning. And oh, these are massive, these fences. And I bumped into Fred Rymel, who was walking the course. And he always saw this lanky, ashen-faced youth. Um, and he said, I know what you need. So we went to this bar and he gave me a glass of champagne about 10 o'clock in the morning. He said, he said most jockeys need this before they run in the Grand National. And it, it, you know, the effervescence kind of fills you up and you get a bit braver. Anyway, we got the first fence and I got unseated. <laughs> so my claim is I'd actually landed on, I, mean, I did actually jump a fence. Jump but one, that, that, jump was one fence. that was it. Uh, it's interesting, you said nervous like I am. If you're a, a nervous person, person by um, temperament, how on earth did you be a racehorse trainer for 45 years? I don't know, really. Um, Are you a worrier? Yeah, terrible. Shocking. I really mind. That's the problem. Um, I think that the risk of failure is so high. And I think it's there. You have, you have great moments, obviously. You know, mm. time lock wins and everyone thinks you're marvellous and it's great. But, you know, had... Had Greek order finished last, um, and then you get 20 messages saying you should have retired a long time ago. You're underperforming. You're you're not a good trainer, and it and it you know it shouldn't wound one, but it actually does. And and Harry keeps on saying, take no notice. Why you worry about these things? His temperament is much, luckily, much better than mine. I've always worried about things. Um, I think it's kind of the way one is, and I think that, you know, we have to give off an external image of being completely calm. And now that occasionally you go to the races and a camera is trained on you during a race, which is, I always think is a bit under the belt, you know, you see Nicky Henderson on the same place for the, for the, for the champion hurdle. But, you know, emotions come out, and, um, you know, in two minutes a lot happens. You, it could make a huge difference to your career that you... That horse has won or hasn't won, and, and dare I say it, Greek order very nearly won, and that you know would have been great. But I was still thrilled with the way he ran. Had he finished last, there might have been a chance that the horse would have gone to the horses in training cell, and we'd um, lose on lose out on a potentially nice horse. So, what is it, or who is it, what is it that has kind of kept you going pretty strongly through that period? with some really notable highs in each of the decades that you've trained? I think because one's hugely ambitious. I mean, I just think I'd be probably useless at everything else, and, and the only thing I have is to train horses as best I can and put everything into them and do everything I can, think about it all the time as to what will improve this horse. You know, I, I like being with the animals. I go out at 9 o'clock every night and I feed quite a lot of the horses again at nine o'clock and I know what's eaten up and I go around, as I say, go around evening stables. I really enjoy doing that and I think if you, you know, should you get a horse that, um, for example, we bought a horse recently a sale from a large trainer in the north that was very well bred and cost ten grand and everyone said you shouldn't buy it. If I can get that horse to win a race, and I think we might be able to, um, that gives me as much pleasure as anything else. It's a real challenge. You know, real challenge to get Al Kazim through a stud career and back on the track. I mean, you know, I think about it all day. It's very boring for everyone else, but, you know, that's, I guess, how I am. And when he did come back from stud, how did you get him back onto the race course? 
Well, he was he was a remarkable horse. Actually, he was he was a very tough horse, and actually, you kind of assume they're going to come back and they'd be all culty and all over the place, and and he wasn't. He was very gross and very large, and we eventually got him fit. And you know, luckily, we've got a wonderful sort of mile and mile and one furlong gallop, and without that, we wouldn't have got him back. I mean, he was a he was a very special horse, mm. and and the best. Day, I think one of the best days in my racing life was. Um, I said to Mr. Deere, "Look, if we, this was a f- five-year-old, I think. Um, if we aim at the Tats Gold Cup, there, there's never many runners there. We, you know, he'd won a Group Two, he'd won the Jockey Club Stakes, and then he broke his pelvis. Um, you know, we might get Group One place, mm. and we were thinking he might make. He was a wonderful-looking horse by Jabari. He might make a jumping stallion." And um, we got there, and the ground was pretty quick. And um, James Doyle ran round the track. And James Doyle had never ridden at the Curra before, except over five furlongs. Luckily, I, Mr. Deer didn't realise that. And I'd looked at Camelot's races, and you know, he bar three quarters of a length would have been a triple crown winner. Mm-hmm. He was a spectacularly good horse, and he tracked the pace, and he produced a great turn of foot. And I said to James, whatever you do, you miss the break and you track Camelot. There was only five runners, of which one was a pacemaker. One wasn't much good, I think. Um, and that we did. And to win when you taking on Aidan yeah. in his back garden with a horse that was nearly a triple crown winner was so satisfying. Um, he asked me before. He sidled up. And, and it was early days. I think he was the first crop of Jubawi almost early days, and, and he said, um, so I, I always understood that Jabari's needed a cut in the ground, and the ground was sort of good to firm, almost firm in mm. place, trying to sort of unnerve me, I think. But <laughs> it was... Interesting psychological it, warfare, isn't Yeah, it? well, I think it is. I mean, he was such a good-looking horse that when he walked into the pre-parade ring, the, 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 uh, the Coolmore boys and, and Bally Doyle contingent all sort of looked at him and sort of, ooh, wow, this is a... Could be a proper horse, mm. and he was a proper horse. I mean, he won, he won four Group Ones, so had to be. Uh, the other point to note, of course, about your your career is, and we've talked about this when you came on the show before, the spectacular start of winning two derbies in your <laughs> first season. Um, did it become a bit of a millstone in some respects? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, if if you're going to tick the boxes, I, I mean, I. You know, I think I think the Arc is probably the best race of all myself, and had a couple of runners. But if someone had said you want to tick the boxes and you tick them in the first year by actually getting the monkey off your back and you win a, a, an English Derby and a French Derby in the same year, which I don't think an other English trainers actually done, I'm not sure. No doubt your record people will tell you, but I don't think so. Um, you would you would have you'd have got grabbed it. Of course you would. Whether it did it did me good, whether it did me whether I don't know whether it happened a bit too soon. I felt very sorry for Barry Hills, who'd been trying to win it forever, and he was second in that race. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, which is quite often the case, the first two were the only horses in that race that genuinely stayed a mile and a half. Yeah. The rest were non-stayers. Um, I've forgotten it, how easily he won. He won. He was. He looked good, didn't he? Yeah. Um, Blue Stag, the runner-up, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And and you know the the miraculous thing really was that. Um, we had in those days 
six, 55, 60 horses, of which 30 were three-year-olds, of which there were 15 colts. And you end up with Deploy, who was second in the Irish Derby. Sanglemore wins the Dante and the French Derby and, and Quest for Fame. And, you know, if you're sitting down playing cards and people would, you know, you got four races and then five minutes later you got four races, it's not possible because those horses could have easily been in different yards. There wasn't a lot between them. Mm. To win the derby, you need a very special horse that's way better than everything else. And actually, all three horses were rated 121, 122. But you wouldn't be human if you didn't think after that, well, I'm probably <laughs> going to be champion trainer half no, a dozen I never times. No, I never thought that. Yeah. I remember talking to all the lads in the yard and saying, listen, this mustn't go to our heads. We've got to work extra hard now. And, and I think one's feet were pretty firmly mm. on the ground. I never... I mean, yes, you're elated and you're, you're lucky, but um, I've never really, I've never, well, I hope I've never got carried away by, by any victory, actually. How have you enjoyed working with Harry? Very much, actually. I mean, you know, obviously, I, I, t Tom, my youngest son, is, is in uh, Sydney working mm. with John O'Shea. But, you know, they were both always from the start loving racing, loving sport, but, you know, loving racing and then wanting to know what the new yearlings were like and what's their owner like. So, you know, there was always great enthusiasm there. And they went through whether it was, you know, tamarisks or, you know, the good horses and enjoying it. And then school and Harry did his accountancy and all that sort of thing. And I think I'm extremely lucky, actually, to have a son that wants to do it. You think of so many trainers, um, I can think of some at the moment, that you know, are doing so well, but at some stage you're still training when you're 80, 90, 100. When do you stop? And it's a bit like running a school. You can't take your eye off the ball. You can't you know, do it three days a week like a lot of people do. I'm 74 next year, um, and I'm no intention of stopping working. But to have Harry wanting to take on and have somebody that, you know, I'm absolutely convinced um, will do very well and has, you know, new ideas. Um, we're lucky because otherwise I think, you know, the chances are Beckhampton would grind to a bit of a halt. And I think, you know, that that would be a sad loss of a bit of history. Uh, you mentioned your, your other son, Tom, who's yeah. down in, in Oz. I did bump into him in Melbourne last year. He is practically Australian now, isn't he? He, <laughs> it depends who talks to him a bit. I mean, if, he, if he's talking to me, he sounds very English, but if you listen to an interview, mm. which he seems to do a few of, um, he is a proper Aussie. And he loves Australia. I mean, he's getting married next year to a wonderful um, Australian girl. And, um, you know, his life will be there. And, um, you know, he works very hard. But racing's, you know, it, you know what it's like. It's great there. And um, he reminded me that we had a horse called Braden Star that won rather too easily at Salisbury one day with David Egan. And needless to say, the telephone starts ringing in the office for Australia, and the horse went to Australia. I can't remember actually what he sold for, but sort of around 200 grand probably. And he sent me a message the other day. He's now won $400,000. And, you know, he's just moving into proper stakes races and is going to win a lot more races. And, you know, that... That is where a lot of good horses obviously go. Um, they're, they're sort of, you know, you see pictures of the races, television. There are so many young people at the races having a, a wonderful time. And, you know, the idea of going to Randwick and, and having a Saturday racing and runners in group races, and then within half an hour, you're, 
on a street in a restaurant with all your mates having dinner. Mm. You know, Newmarket is a great place, but, you know, you're in your car, three hours traffic. You know, if you'd won a Group 1, you're still flogging home in the car. It's not quite the same thing mm. of being to have sort of instant fun. Because, you know, racing has to be fun. You know, that's what it's about. It's f having fun. And that's it. It's, it, it, it the, when you take racing away from the cities... Yeah. This is the kind yeah. of scenario you're describing. And that yeah. gradually, over time, that's what Britain has done. Yeah. I mean, you know, COVID was a shocking killer for so many places. And I don't think a lot of people really got over the sort of not going racing syndrome. Mm. I saw a, a lovely John Garnsey yesterday. And, and I, you know, I said, gosh, I haven't seen you for ages. He said, yeah, I haven't been. The last time I was here was before COVID. And you think, well, was that two years ago or three years ago? You know, you sort of lose, lose time. And it had a terrible dampening effect on racing. I mean, going racing with a mask on, with a cardboard mm. box, with a pork pie in it, and segregation, and, you know, it was yeah. just pretty, pretty Tony, rough. Tony's written a whole book about it. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it's damaged the country, um, you know, and we've, we've suffered... Um, the country suffered a lot. I think, mm. you know, Brexit was bad enough. And then COVID and, you know, now cost of living is um, not comfortable. Do you think racing has been hit harder in terms of horse population and how you sort of see the game on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you think it's been hit harder by COVID than perhaps we gave it credit for? <sighs> or do you think the bounce back ability has been... Good. I think it's a very resilient industry. I mean, you've only, you only have to drop into Tats this week to see <laughs> so many enthusiastic breeders, um, mm. Irishmen particularly. Um, you know, they've been knocked for six. Trainers get knocked down. It is a very resilient group of people. But, yeah, I guess it probably has. I think it's, I don't know, it seems to me, and, and I'm, you know, this is not a gripe, but it seems to me that, you know, new markets got very big and the stables in Newmarket have 200, 300 horses and you know it's more difficult to get horses um, in the country I think. I mean you know Rafe's obviously doing fantastically well but you know our numbers have been pretty badly affected and you can't really I don't know Covid or, or not Covid but I guess a new owner will come from the Middle East, maybe, and they say, who are the best trainers? And, you know, the obvious names come out. And then the, the bloodstock agent finds it easier to deal with four stables in Newmarket than maybe driving to Wiltshire. I don't know. But, you know, we need to get um, those people down here. We need, you know, a lot of some of my owner breeders are no more. And uh, we need to fight very hard to actually keep the boxes full. Perhaps under now the sole stewardship of Harry Charlton, yeah. Beckhampton will be full to the brim of beautifully bred horses. That's the hope. Well, that's the target, and I shall certainly be working extremely hard, and uh, as he will be, to, 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 you know, to, to get that message out there. And, uh, you know, I think you have to ask for horses. I think you have to hassle. I think you have to demand. Several, several of my bigger owners came because I asked if I could have a horse. Blue yeah. Diamond Stud, for example, was one. Yeah, and then you train them a Group One winner with with decorated knights, yeah. of course. Um, it would be rather nice. I know you're not. You don't want this to turn into some sort of funereal effort, but um, it would be rather nice to go out with a Group One, wouldn't it? With the with the name on the license. Can you pull this off on Champions Day with time? Well, it would be great. Um, I mean, I you know I owe so much to Judmont, obviously. I mean, Barry Marne, 
and Simon Mockridge do such a fantastic job and the way those horses are reared and produced and they're proper horses, stonking horses um, and I've been so lucky um, to, to really have them around for so long. Yeah, I mean she won, she won well. Um, I think they went very, very quick. I thought she looked very good in the Gaultries last year, and I thought we were a bit unlucky not to, to win the Gaultries. And I you beat by a good horse as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, you know, I, I wrote a report in the spring saying, well, we'll go here and then go there, and hopefully end up in the Yorkshire Oaks. And then I'm thinking, we're missing the target. We're getting black type. We're running well, but we're not producing what I thought we'd produce. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Champions Day um, would be the target. Yep, she needs to just step forward again. But, you know, why not? Why not? She's a, she's a fabulous looking she's beast. She's a sweet mare. And she's got, you know, some, some Frankels can be a bit sparky. She's mm. so easy. And Amy Vickers, who won one of those great prizes um, last year, um, you know, the State Godolphin yeah. Awards, she not only is head lass and feeds her every day, but she rides her, rides her every day. And, you know, she loves her. And she's so easy to train um, and so straightforward and laid back and, you know, big, strong mare that, with a wonderful pedigree that, yeah, would be great, wouldn't it?